0: Hello everyone and welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thanks for listening to us today. How you doing, Ben?
1: I'm doing great. It's a beautiful summer day and yeah everything's coming up scream scene
0: yeah that's that's how i feel too that's great well speaking of coming up scream scene what's coming up on this episode what are we we watching today
1: today sarah we're watching the lady and the monster from 1944
0: okay okay i've never heard of this
1: Yeah, it's not one that I was super familiar with either before we embarked on the project of doing the show. (laughs) It is from Republic Pictures.
0: That's probably why we haven't heard of it.
1: Uh, And Republic Pictures was sort of the top of the Poverty Row Studios, Mm -hmm. Uh, sort of one step below the minors, which were like Universal and Columbia and United Artists. Um, the first and last time we saw a horror movie from Republic was Crime of Dr. Crespi in 1935.
0: Okay, so it's been a while. Yeah. And that didn't rank...
1: Very high. Yeah. No, 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 no. Uh, it's, it's ranked down in like the 90s somewhere, I'm pretty sure.
0: I remember it had really good lighting, but that was about it. hmm and White Fi.
1: Yes, and also Eric von Stroheim. Yes. So in that episode, we talked about sort of the history of Republic, which uh, came about when the film lab Consolidated Film Industries bought out six Poverty Row movie companies that were in debt for their film development costs. One of those companies, uh, Monogram, became independent again in 1937, but the other constituents of Republic were Mascot, Liberty, Majestic, Chesterfield and Invincible Pictures.
0: Oh yeah, I I remember making fun of Chesterfield.
1: Mm. Initially, each constituent studio retained control over their own productions. Uh, however, as time went on by the late 1930s, uh Republic's owner Herbert J. Yates, who had owned Consolidated Film Laboratories and had, you know, bought all of these uh in debt film studios was exerting more and more control over the productions as he sort of was slowly learning the film business from watching his um, so-called partners and many of the producers who were initially in charge of these constituent studios either left or were forced out as Yates brought in a team of younger associate producers who would be loyal to him.
0: I feel like that's the premise for a Mad Men-type AMC original. (laughs) You know what I mean?
1: (laughs) Uh, So, Republic Pictures' bread and butter was B-movies and serials. Mostly Westerns. Um, But, like, Republic and serials sort of were almost synonymous. Mm -hmm. To the point where, like, a Republic serial is sort of almost a redundant phrase. Now, Westerns were sort of the bread and butter of most of Poverty Row, but Republic's budgets were noticeably higher than sort of everyone below them. Uh, They had Western stars like John Wayne and Gene Autry and Roy Rogers, and by the mid-1940s, they were occasionally producing larger-scale films like Sands of Iwo Jima. One element of Herbert Yates' philosophy of filmmaking was strict adherence to the production code, uh, staunchly avoiding controversial subject matter and fights with the Breen office, which may explain uh, the lack of horror output uh, that we've seen up to this point. Yeah. Now, The Lady and the Monster is the first film adaptation of Kurt Siedmach's novel, Donovan's Brain. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of a loose adaptation, because um, from the best that I know, there is neither a lady nor a monster in the novel. (laughs) Uh, Both a female lead and an evil mad scientist character were added to the plot so the film could serve as a vehicle for two performers who were working under contract for Republic Pictures at this time. But I'll talk a little bit about that more in a moment. First, I think we need to pull back and talk about Donovan's brain.
0: Yeah. So, I I think you could argue that there is a monster. Not so much in the sense of, like, Frankenstein's monster, mm. but more in the sense of... You monster! How could you?
1: Right, we were the monster all along. Exactly. We are the Walking Dead, Sarah.
0: (laughs) Yeah, so just a quick recap on Kurt Seidmack. The last time we mentioned him was in our episode on Son of Dracula. Kurt Seidmack was born in Dresden, Germany in 1902 and got his writing start with novels, the profit of which went into helping fund films from his director brother Robert Seidmack. Following the Nazi rise to power and Joseph Goebbels overseeing Germany's cultural industries, Kurt and his brother would emigrate, with Robert going to Paris and Kurt to England and later to the U.S. by 1937. Kurt has earned his name as a screenwriter so far here on Scream Scene, uh, writing screenplays for um, the films that we've covered, like the 1940 The Invisible Man Returns, episode 72, 1940's Black Friday, episode 73. 1940's The Ape, that's the one with Karloff, episode 79. Um, His big hit is 1941's The Wolfman, episode 88. Uh, But he also was the writer for 1943's Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman, episode 102. I Walked with a Zombie, episode 104. And Son of Dracula, episode 109.
1: Yeah, he's become quite prolific in the horror genre at this time.
0: Yeah, he was also prolific in many other genres, as well as other mediums. So we've seen him as a screenwriter, but he wrote many short stories and several novels, including FP1 Fails to Reply in 1931, which was later adapted to film, Writers to the Stars in 54, Skyport in 59, The Third Ear, uh, not The Third Man, just His Ear, uh in 1971 and City in the Sky 1974. Um all of these and many of his short stories kind of featuring the pulp style of plots and science fiction tropes with giant insects and the like. All that being said, his biggest non-screenwriting success is the book that this film adapts, Donovan's Brain from 1942. And it was so popular that Seedmack would write a second and third sequel to the success, Hauser's Memory in 68, and Gabriel's Body in
1: 1991.
0: Huh. So Donovan's Brain, though published as a complete novel in 42, originally appeared as a three-part serial in the pulp magazine Black Mask. Oh, okay. Yeah, um, that's actually where the the Maltese Falcon was first published in, uh, back in 1929.
1: Yeah, Black Mask was a big deal.
0: Yeah, um, my understanding is that the magazine was mainly known for crime thrillers. Yes. So it's kind of odd to see Donovan's brain in here, but Black Mask would occasionally publish a cult-based and other genre fiction. So Donovan's brain is written in the style of diary entries from a Dr. Patrick Corey, whose experiments revolve around keeping a brain alive in a jar with his assistant, the aging alcoholic Dr. Shrett. Okay. Um these experiments are kind of disrupted when millionaire megalomaniac WH Donovan crashes his plane near the Corey home. It's kind of explained that Donovan has been on the run for tax evasion and criminal activities. Wonderful. Dr. Corey is unable to save Donovan's life but does save his brain in a jar with saline solution and the like. through sensing brainwaves with with equipment um, they are able to tell that there is life and energy in the brain, but they're unable to communicate with it. So Dr. Corey begins to try to develop a telepathic link. And one night when Corey is unconscious, he receives some demands from the brain to like write some lists uh, of people who need to get taken care of, as it were. And the writing is in Donovan's hand. Uh, so... This telepathic connection has been made. Mm-hmm. However, Donovan's personality begins to overpower Cory's, leaving Cory in an unconscious state. Um, even his physical appearance and mannerisms become more and more like Donovan's. Does this remind you of anything we've seen before? Think about it Orlock's hands? No. Oh. Donovan has been using Cory to continue illicit activities and all of this comes to a head when the brain tries to use corey to commit a murder to avoid this and the brain's continuing telepathic power corey repeats this rhyme in order to keep himself focused so he can destroy the brain and the rhyme is because um siad mac likes rhymes as seen in the wolfman right amidst the mists and coldest frosts He thrusts his fists against the posts and still insists he sees the ghosts. Not quite as
1: roll off the tongue as, um, (laughs) even even a man man who is pure at heart and says his prayers by night may become a wolf when the wolfbane blooms and the autumn moon is bright.
0: Yeah, this feels more like a tongue twister.
1: Yeah, this feels like something I would say before going on stage, like, ten times to, like, make sure I got my syllabants all good, you know?
0: Exactly. Through repeating this rhyme, Corey is able to resist the brain's power, and with Dr. Schott's help, Dr. Corey breaks the glass tank with the brain, and Donovan is finally dead.
1: Was it Black Friday? Was I supposed to be thinking of Black Friday? Yes, it
0: was. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah it's definitely Black Friday. So,
0: um, this story uh, was first adapted in 1944, so two years after publication, uh, through the CBS radio play series called Suspense. Okay. Starring Orson Welles. Oh, in what part? As Dr. Corey. Okay. And while this novel is definitely one of Seed Mac's most popular, um, part of its success lies in the three film adaptations, which he kind of alluded to before. So this one from 1944, Lady and the Monster. There was a, another ad- adaptation in 1953 actually called Donovan's Brain.
1: Yeah, and I think that's probably the most famous of the adaptations, like, that's probably the version more people know about.
0: And then, again, in 1962, just called The Brain. Um, so, yeah, you might have noticed, uh, in addition to Black Friday, which came out in 1940, um, this story has a lot of similarities with the uh, 1936 film, The Man Who Changed His Mind. Right, okay. Episode 65, Um And that came out in the UK while Steve Mack was in the UK. Right. So it's likely he saw that as well. Right. Now, I will mention that to say that there is no lady in the novel is a bit of a misnomer, given that um, Dr. Corey is married Mm. and it's through his wife's wealth that he's able to fund his experiments.
1: Okay, that's funny.
0: Yeah. So, sort of a lady, sort of a, sort of a monster. It sounds like this story was changed a lot during this adaptation to screen.
1: Yeah, I don't think Corey's wife is a character. Okay. Um, they sort of made up a new uh, character for, that's the the sort of titular lady. Um, Donovan's wife is a character, uh, and Corey in this version is the assistant to a mad scientist who is a new character.
0: Okay.
1: The lady... So I mentioned that the, both the lady and the monster are roles that were created to service uh, some performers who were on contract for a Republic. So we'll talk about the lady first, and that is uh, Vera Ralston is the actress's name. Now, Vera Ralston, in 1949, uh, five years after this movie came out, Republic owner Herbert Yates would leave his wife and children to marry Vera Ralston.
0: Oh my. That's uh, quite a scandal.
1: Yes. So she was born Vera Hruba in 1920 in Prague. She was an Olympic level figure skater who represented Czechoslovakia at the 1936 Winter Olympics. Damn. She then moved to the United States with her mother and brother in 1941 two years after Czechoslovakia was absorbed into Nazi Germany. She signed a contract with Republic Pictures in 1943, and uh, Herbert Yates was in love with her, although he was 40 years her senior. Great. In addition to putting Vera into a bunch of movies um, in starring roles, despite her meager acting talents he also made her brother a producer at republic pictures Vera Ralston was in yeah like a lot of movies for republic um but generally speaking people didn't think she was that great and the public didn't really share Yates's enthusiasm for her of the 20 films she made with republic only two made money oh no Uh, John Wayne actually left Republic in 1952 because he couldn't stand to make another picture with her. Oh, no! And ultimately, Yates would be forced out of the company in 1958 by the shareholders who charged him with losing the company's money promoting his wife's career. In 1959, Republic would then cease to produce motion pictures and focus solely on distribution. So... Uh, It's worth mentioning that The Lady and the Monster was Vera Ralston's first movie for Republic Pictures. Okay. The beginning of a chain of events that would sort of eventually see the end of Republic Pictures as, like, a movie studio, basically.
0: Yikes. More like Yates.
1: So that's the lady part of The Lady and the Monster. The monster, meanwhile, is the new mad scientist character who is played by none other than Eric von Stroheim.
0: Wow, so you're brand new to the acting scene and you have to act opposite to this guy. Mhm.
1: So von Stroheim was of course the title character in Crime of Dr. Crespi, which was the last Republic horror movie we saw.
0: Yes, he was the one doing the crimes. Mhm.
1: And for more on the life and career of this once major Motion picture director turned somewhat um, humbled actor. Uh, check out episode 55, which is our episode on Crime of Dr. Crespi. Now, since then, notable films von Stroheim has acted in include La Grande Illusion in 1937, which was directed by Jean Renoir and is considered one of the greatest movies ever made, and also uh, Ultimatum from 1938 which was directed by Robert Vina, uh, who, of course, directed um, Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, among others, and who died of a heart attack during the filming of that movie and was replaced by Robert Seatmac. Von Stroheim's sort of big later career role in Sunset Boulevard is still six years in the future at this point. So he's mostly still slumming it.
0: Sometimes you got to slum it to get to where you want to be. Get back to where you want to be. Get back
1: to where you want to be, yeah. Uh, In the lead role, the lead romantic role, uh, lead heroic role? In the lead role of Dr. Patrick Corey is Richard Arlen. And part of the reason for the creation of Von Stroheim's character is so that Corey would be sort of innocent of the creation of Donovan's brain because he's just the assistant. Um, Because doing that in the eyes of the production code authority would make him a villainous character who would need to be punished and, like, die at the end of the story.
0: Mm. Uh,
1: Richard Arlen, of course, had his big break in the 1927 Best Picture winner, Wings, and we last saw him all the way back in 1932's Island of Lost Souls, where he was the male romantic lead, Parker.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's okay. He does the role of... Lead romantic handsome man, Mm -hmm. well.
1: He's been in dozens of movies since then, of course, Uh, but at 45 years old now, his career has mostly settled into B-movies by this point. So the film's director, 36-year-old George Sherman, had made a career consisting mostly of B-movie westerns. He worked for Republic from 1938 to 1944, Uh, Lady and the Monster was his second last film for Republic. His last film for Republic was also a Vera Ralston and Eric Von Stroheim movie. So I think we can decide what made the final straw with him at that company. Uh, Then he worked for Columbia from 1945 to 48, Universal from 48 to 56, and Freelance afterwards, retiring in 1978 with 129 directing credits. Dang. Mostly Westerns. Lady and the Monster was adapted from Donovan's Brain by 39-year-old Austrian novelist Friedrich Koner. Now, he had been a screenwriter in Germany, but he was Jewish, and so he fled the country with the assistance of Robert Seidmack in 1936, and went by the name Friedrich Koner upon working in the United States. He is best known today for the Gidget series of novels. Uh, These are comedies about a teen girl surfer and her surfer friends that were based on his teen daughter. And they were eight novels written from 1957 to 1968, adapted into three films from 1959 to 63 starring Sandra Dee, a 1965 to 66 TV series starring Sally Field, which was her big first role three sequel TV movies from 1969 to
0: 1985,
1: and a sequel TV series in 1986 to 1988. All right. Kind of invented the, like, beach teen
0: surfer genre. Okay. Yeah. That's pretty cool.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Cinematography for the film is by John Alton, a Hungarian cinematographer who was born Johan Altman. Was one of the most respected and sought after cinematographers of this era. In 1949, he wrote one of the first books on cinematography, Painting with Light, and in 1951, he won the Academy Award for An American in Paris.
0: Not a werewolf, just no. a, an American in Paris. Mm-hmm.
1: So The Lady and the Monster was released April 17th, 1944, to negligible critical attention and disappointing box office. Oh, no. And it is now in the public domain.
0: What a shame.
1: And uh, you can find it on the Scream Scene YouTube playlist.
0: Well, I guess we're watching this. Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) No, I'm sure it'll be enjoyable. Von Stroheim is... Nothing if not enjoyable to watch. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, folks, if you would like to watch The Lady and the Monster along with us, you can go to our YouTube playlist at screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss The Lady and the Monster from 1944, directed by George Sherman.
1: See you on the other side, everybody. Welcome back, everyone, to Scream Scene. We just finished watching *The Lady and the Monster* from 1944, directed by George Sherman. Sarah, what did you think of this movie?
0: There are a couple things that I like, but overall, I found this film tedious and a little like frustrating. They keep dramatically referring to a type of saw called a giggly saw. And they are pronouncing it correctly. Uh, It's like a long saw that you use to cut the bones because they're cutting into people's skulls. Um, But whenever they say, get out the giggly saw, Mm -hmm. like it's really hard not to laugh. For sure. Yeah. I think I had kind of
1: the inverse opinion of you. I mostly... You found the giggly saw
0: to be completely serious?
1: No. uh, I mostly really enjoyed this, and there were a few things that I thought were like, pretty weak about it, but, Mm. like, on the whole, mostly
0: liked it. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Okay, okay.
1: I did have, like, a hard time staying awake, but that's more because I just seem to be really tired today, not really anything to do with the movie. So, let's start at the beginning with what the movie's storyline is.
0: For sure. So, the thing that will probably most surprise you, listener, when you go to watch this movie if you go to watch this movie, is that it opens with a narrator, which is very reminiscent of kind of a Twilight Zone feeling, but by the end of the film feels a bit more like a Hitchcock Presents type of narrator. And the voice will come in throughout the film, which is very helpful because it is a very convoluted plot going on.
1: You know, I found that the narrator honestly wasn't, probably wasn't useful I, I honestly was like, yeah, I I, I can get it, guys. <laughs> um one note about this narrator, uh his uh name is Frank Graham, is the name of the like voice actor. He's not any of the characters in the film, so it's like a totally third person, omniscient kind of thing. Um and the only thing that Frank Graham's really known for is he's the voice of the fox and the crow in Columbia Pictures' Fox and Crow series of cartoons from this period.
0: Oh, we've watched some of those. They're not good. They are not. So we open with Professor Franz Mueller and his two assistants, Janice and Dr. Patrick Corey, and their experiments with trying to keep brains alive after death because science. mm mm-hmm. uh, You get the feeling that... Corey is invested into this because he invented some kind of machine that I think monitors brainwaves or something involved in the process of this.
1: Yeah, it's an encephalograph. It's just that in the movie, they keep calling it the um, encephalograph. So you can see why
0: I was surprised that Giggly saw was being pronounced correctly. Yeah, they also use a lot of scalpels. (laughs) Mueller is invested in these experiments in keeping the brain functioning because of the glory of achieving something. And Janice is here because her father is dead and Mueller took her in. She's his ward. And he kind of just took her in in the hopes that she'd eventually fall for him. Or at least, like, that's her interpretation of it. Like, she keeps
1: insisting to everyone in the movie that Mueller is after her in that way. But, like, I'm not sure if it's just von Stroheim playing, like, Oh, the innocent routine too well, or like what? But there's just not a lot there to like him being wanting to be with Janice.
0: She's actually become more close with Corey instead. Mm-hmm. Kind of the biggest evidence for Mueller not wanting Janice to be with Corey and instead to be with him is he keeps basically making Corey work instead of going out with Janice. So I think there's evidence there. Mm. I would disagree with your interpretation that it's not.
1: For sure. I suppose we should also mention that all of these experiments are happening at The Castle, a gothic mansion in the middle of the Arizona desert, Mm -hmm. because they decided they wanted to keep the novellas like Phoenix, Arizona setting, but they definitely still wanted a gothic mansion in it, Mm -hmm. which is hilarious. And so with the Gothic mansion comes the, you know, uh, like old housekeeper stock character, Mrs. Fame, who's also there.
0: Yeah. So they're doing these experiments, but they're not having a huge amount of success. Things are progressing pretty slowly. That is until a plane crashes nearby. And of the two passengers on board, one is still possibly alive. Uh, This man is taken to the nearest house with a doctor, and that would be Mueller's castle. He is, this man is declared dead, so Mueller decides to take this opportunity to salvage the brain. Um, It's noted that this is illegal. Corey brings this up, and Mueller's like, yeah, but we've been wanting a human brain? Come on. So Corey's like, yeah, okay, and is right in the thick of it with Mueller, Turns out this man is William H. Donovan, who is soup's rich. um,
1: Or is he?
0: <laughs> or is he? Uh, and I also get the feeling that they're kind of going for a little bit of a Howard Hughes feel for this guy. Hmm.
1: I hadn't thought of that, but when you say it, it's like, yeah, that that fits.
0: Yeah. Continuing with the experiment, Miller and Corey can tell that the brain wants to tell them something. Like, it's being active, and it's just kind of like... Bull, listen to me, bull. That's my impression of a brain in a jar. (laughs) Um, So they consider a few options, including Morse code. uh, But how do they know if the brain knows Morse code? So telepathy is the next best option, apparently. Of course. It's brought up, but nothing really on screen happens in regard to that in terms of, like, getting equipment or experts or anything like that.
1: The only thing he said was like if we overfeed the brain, it'll make the brain waves more powerful and then all you have to do is uh blank your mind and the thoughts will just come to you, which is
0: <laughs> okay. But apparently what happens uh because Cory who has started sleeping next to the brain, uh so he can work until he just goes to sleep gets a telepathic message Mm -hmm. from the brain. So this connection gets stronger and stronger until Corey is completely under Donovan's control. To what end? Well, Donovan wants to get a Roger Collins out of federal jail for a murder he did not commit. So now we take a break from the horror, sci-fi, mystery, spooky dark house part of the plot... And head on down to Los Angeles, where Corey, as Donovan, is doing a bit of a film noir thing. Mm -hmm. He takes money out uh, from Donovan's accounts, he hires Donovan's lawyer, tries to bribe witnesses and jury members in the reopening of Roger Collins' trial in order to acquit Roger. And things come to a head when he ultimately tries to Kill by vehicle, so vehicular manslaughter, um, the star witness, Mary Lou.
1: A young girl who happened to see the crime, so she's the star witness.
0: Um, Luckily, Janice happens to be with him as he's driving, and swerves the car just in time. In response, Donovan as Corey attacks Janice, and is about to kill her when cut to the castle and mrs fame is just dumping morphine. Um, morphine which i thought was only in a liquid form but i guess it's in a powder form because that's what we see being poured in i don't know i don't have a medical degree she's pouring that stuff into the brain jar then we cut back to cory and he's like oh i'm myself again the brains it's power it's not over me
1: My favorite part of that is, like, that the cut to fame and back, like, doing the morphine, is a wipe. Like, it's wipe, (laughs) she pours the stuff in, wipe, and he's fine. Yeah. It's very much, it's a little anticlimactic.
0: Yeah. Um, And that's because the climax is yet to come. Corey and Janice head back to the castle lab to confront Mueller to be like, no, really, we got to stop this. Mueller's been kind of pushing for them to keep on with this experiment of... Donovan's brain controlling Corey. And they're like, no, Mueller, we have to destroy the brain. So, Mueller and Corey fight. And this ultimately ends with Mrs. Fame getting a hold of Mueller's gun and shooting Mueller. And Janice taking a chair to the brain jar. Cage match style. <laughs> um, Mueller is dead. The brain, so Donovan, is fully dead. And the voiceover comes back in to say that Roger Collins, who we have come to find out that he is innocent, it was actually Donovan who killed the man for reasons I won't get into because I don't think it's super relevant. The voiceover explains Roger Collins is fine, he was acquitted, and Corey, for his part in all of this, has agreed to go to jail for like a short time, and don't worry, Janice is there, five years later, waiting for him, and there is a happy ending here. The end.
1: Also, Mrs. Fame was, um, I don't know if it's acquitted, but, like, she only got, like, a very mild sentence for killing Mueller or something. Really? I didn't Yeah, wanna... they they said that, too, in that <laughs> ending voiceover. It was like, yeah, everything worked out fine, basically.
0: So it has a very much, like, Alfred Hitchcock Presents thing where, like, you see the bad guy drive off, and then it comes back to Alfred Hitchcock and him being like don't worry, the police caught up with him. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, after watching this movie, I can see now how a kind of science fiction premise like Donovan's Brain was published in the noir, uh, pulpy, black mask magazine.
1: Right, yeah, totally. So you didn't like this movie, but liked a few things about it, and I liked this movie, but didn't like a few things about it. What I'm going to kind of be interested in is to see if, like... Those things end up being the same. It's just like a difference of degrees or, hmm. or what um so do you want to go first or
0: sure um because for me there's only there's only two things that I like about this movie, okay, <laughs> one is the lighting, yes, the lighting is very, very well done.
1: yeah, the cinematography here looks fantastic. This movie looks
0: great um like there's several shots throughout where. It's just a pool of blackness, but all you see is the light shining from the side onto someone's face. I think, like, Corey's face as he's asleep and beginning to get controlled. Like, it's very stylized, it's beautiful, and it does a great job of setting the mood. And that's the part of the kind of horror science fiction part of the story that continues into the film noir stuff. Um, When Donovan and Corey is going about his business... Um, it's not like things are shot flat, like there's still like light through the blinds in a film noir style, but in order to visually depict that Corey is under the influence of Donovan, he's consistently lit from below, Mm -hmm. even when someone's standing next to him lit in a traditional manner.
1: Yeah. He, he, um, John Alton, the cinematographer, lights Donovan when he's controlling Corey, uh, differently than when he's lighting just Corey on his own. Mm-hmm. And it always makes it kind of very clear what's going on. And it really helps um, Richard Arlen's performance and making that distinction very clear. Yeah, I I thought the lighting in this movie was fantastic. It really um, made the movie look like a million bucks.
0: Yeah, honestly, like when we would get shots of Donovan as Corey walking around and like interacting with people with like this light, um, there were parts of, especially when... Donovan starts to gain control over Corey and the Mm -hmm. light starts to come up. Mm -hmm. That really reminded me of this one particular um, Twilight Zone episode where the devil is like just a regular guy and then it's just a trick of lighting that allows some makeup to come out and the guy's face turns into Satan. Mm -hmm. Um, It's obviously not the same extent, like there's no makeup being used like that in this film but um, it just felt like a precursor. I don't know the actual air date of that Mm. Twilight Zone, but it It, just reminded me visually of it.
1: At least 15 years later than this, probably. Okay. So that kind of segues into one of the other things I really liked about this movie. We'll see if you agree. I thought Richard Arlen did a really good job as Corey slash Donovan. Um, I really thought it was a pretty great performance with a very clear distinction Um, between the two characters in, like, voice and mannerisms and um, just the way that he kind of held and carried himself and sounded. I really liked uh, that core performance, and I think that performance is key to kind of buying the premise of the movie, I guess. So, yeah, that was something I really liked.
0: Um, I have to disagree. I don't think his acting was very well done here. To me... Like, yes, he's going from Corey to Donovan uh, fairly well, but that's because he's playing two very far extremes, where Cory is like bland white toast. The only time that Corey gets a little bit more of something interesting to do is when he starts playing Corey's, um fascination with the experiment. But once he becomes Donovan as Corey, he's just angry. It's just like a an aggressive anger type of performance um there's no real like oh i can see how this was a real person Mm. you know you don't get a feeling of donovan as a character donovan is just angry Mm. um and that yeah it was just like the whole way through of donovan donovan as Corey's performance yeah 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 (laughs) um so i yeah i disagree i think there are interesting moments that arlen does something neat, like the way he transitions between right and left hands for writing and things like that. Um, and some things, you know, I can tell he's trying to do some things. I just don't think he's as skilled as some actors we've already seen do this type of shtick. Well,
1: I think the thing that is a weakness of this movie in terms of that shtick, if you compare it to say, you know, like a man who changed his mind or, or similar iterations is that we never see, real Donovan, right? Like, we never see an actor as Donovan that we can compare uh, Arlen's version of Donovan to, and I think that's been something that's been really cool when we have seen these kind of brain swap movies, is seeing, like, another actor try to be their version of a different actor's performance.
0: Yeah, like, I kept thinking of The Black Room. Mm -hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. So what were your other high points, then, for this flick?
0: The only other thing that I really liked about this movie is that even though it took a while, like, gosh, it took a while for these ladies to fucking do anything, but it's the ladies that kick ass in the end.
1: Right, yeah, for sure. Um, I I suspected that was going to be on your your list of high points. I'm a little easy to read. (laughs) The thing with the women at the end is like, so, I mean, this is something I, I might need to get into a bit more fully later, but... This movie is kind of bifurcated into what I'll call the Donovan plot Mm -hmm. and the castle plot. Yes. And the castle plot is basically like a, a sandwich or an envelope that goes around the Donovan plot that occupies most of the middle of the movie. And the real problem that I have with this movie is that those two plots only intersect in the sense that Cory is Donovan for part of the movie. Like, you didn't even go into a lot of details about the Donovan plot because they are so inconsequential to the castle plot, yet I suspect that the stuff in the Donovan plot is more what's in the, in novel. the novel, right, because none of the castle plot characters other than Cory are from the novel.
0: Yeah, and most of the castle stuff is what they added mm-hmm. for their star actors.
1: Yeah, and so... In the castle plot, that basically gives you this, you know, if you look at that in isolation from the Donovan stuff, that gives you this, like, love rhombus of, like, Janice is in love with Corey, but Mueller is in love with Janice, but Mrs. Fame is apparently in love with Mueller, because, like, for the early parts of the movie, and you talked about, like, how long it takes the women to finally, like, get to something... For a large part of the early part of the movie, Mrs. Famous kind of um, presented to us as, like, maybe a villainous figure who's maybe on Mueller's side and we don't really know because she's, you know, the creepy old lady in an old dark house, right? So, Mm -hmm. like, that's kind of the stock version of that character. And then there's this, like, twist where it turns out she's helping Janice. And, like, Janice's like, oh my god, you're the one who's been helping me? And then we find out that the reason she's helping Janice to go after Corey is because she wants to get rid of Janice so that then she can get with Mueller. And when Mueller figures that out, he, like, slaps her and is a real dick to her. And that's what eventually motivates her to be the one to shoot Mueller.
0: And um, put morphine in the brain.
1: Right, exactly. So it's this, like, really weird, underdeveloped thing.
0: Yeah, it's not so much a rhombus because there's nothing connecting, yeah, Mrs. Fame and Corey. So it's really just, like, a love
1: you. Right, Yes. I thought that, speaking of the actors, um, Stroheim is enjoyable as Mueller.
0: I love listening to him speak. (laughs) Just like his rhythm of speech and which words he chooses to emphasize, I find very enjoyable to listen to.
1: He's doing like a few extra things that the movie never draws any attention to, so I assume they're not... I think it's in just the him. script it's yeah. just him, like he gives Mueller this like really exaggerated limp for yeah. no real reason,
0: which if you watch it changes like does it, it oh does. i didn't notice
1: um and then the other thing is like he has this you know it's like I have no idea whether it's Stroheim acting or like just him coming through because he plays the entire movie with just this utter disdain for everyone. And that really works well for a Mad Scientist character like Mueller. But it's also like, is that just how Straheim feels about being in this movie? Probably. Um, But yeah, he's fine. He's not doing anything like groundbreaking with the Mad Scientist character, but he's watchable. Vera Ralston isn't great, but I mean, compared to kind of the baseline for horror movie lead actresses, she's not like, out-and-out terrible, either, as Janice. She has, like, a, you know, a Czech accent that she's working hard to act through, and her line delivery's a little flat. But, I mean, compared to, like, Evelyn Anchors, I mean, you know, I can't be too hard on her. She's she's just here. Um, Yeah, so, like, Vera Ralston is not good, but I wouldn't say she's, like, especially bad, at least for, like, this genre at this time in history.
0: I would have really liked to see her in a musical or something that where where she would be required to do some dancing Mm. because I was very intrigued by her figure skating background. Right. Yeah um so yeah I'm disappointed that she never really got to do that. You know that like
1: Criterion Channel has like all the Olympics on it? Oh like, like maybe huh. not all the all the Olympics. Like, I think it only goes up to like a certain date. But like, it has like all the old Olympics on it. Maybe we can go find some uh, some Vera Ralston figure skating. I don't know. That'd be cool. Continuing on with um, positive things, this kind of uh, dovetails into the cinematography a little bit. But I thought that the production values were noticeably higher than Monogram or PRC. And listen. I know that sounds like faint praise but we've been we've been doing a lot of these and just sometimes it's the little things you know
0: honestly the uh production value felt just like a little lower than like a universal
1: I actually thought, yeah, it depends on the Universal movie.
0: Yeah, the, um, what was the one with, like, the ghoul?
1: The Mad Ghoul. Yeah, this, yeah. this looks better than the Mad Ghoul, yeah. but not, like, as good as Wolfman, yeah. right? I thought it was, you know, or you compare it to, like, a Columbia picture, maybe it's not as good as Return of the Vampire, but it's better than, like, maybe a couple of the Boris Karloff ones. Like, yeah, it was, it looks like a real movie. Um, which is certainly in its favor. And it has, like, a variety of sets that, like, we move through, and we go outside sometimes, and, yeah.
0: Yeah, like, when we're at the scene of the crashed plane, they got a lot of tumbleweeds that people are Mm -hmm. just, like, it's in the middle of, like, a windstorm, right? So there's, I'm just, I just imagine some PAs off screen just throwing tumbleweeds into the air. Yep. Um, but it otherwise, like, it looks great. Like, it's very
1: well done. I think this movie, what I liked about it is that it sort of maintains, like, for me at least, it maintained, um, like, tension and kind of a sense of menace and, um, like, dread about, like, you know, things kind of going from bad to worse and this kind of, like, palpable sort of mood or atmosphere of like, hey, this is, I guess this is a horror movie, which sometimes these Poverty Row movies can't even really get that, you know, going. Um, And, you know, like I said, I liked Arlen's performance. Even though the Donovan plot isn't really the focus here, that's one of the reasons why I thought that like, you know, the morphine just going into the brain and he just kind of snaps out of it felt really anticlimactic to me, because it was as if, like, the movie was kind of going along in this straight line, like a freight train, and then it just kind of stops, you know, not because of anything any of our lead characters have done, but because this, like, side character does this thing in, like, a cutaway, which is very sort of strange.
0: Yeah, and as you said, like her motivations are very underdeveloped.
1: Um, But yeah, I I overall thought this movie did a much better job, and maybe it's because I kind of went in this with very low expectations.
0: I think that's healthy.
1: Um, So I think I thought this movie did a much better job than I thought it was going to. So with that said, um, what didn't you like about the movie, Sarah? Other than just saying, I guess, everything else.
0: <laughs> I guess I just found it really tedious. Mhm. Um and I know we say that quite often about these poverty row films, but like we get like a dancing scene at a club. We we just get too much of just like nothing. Um of just like filling time, like oh I guess this is why it's an hour and a half, like we got to do a full like two full uh like a dancing scene and a singing scene at the club. Um, there's too much of, like, oh, now we have to go over here, and now we have to go over there. Oh, now let's see Janice get the call, and then go over here, and then go over there. Um, and the fact that they wrap up the Donovan storyline and mystery, with Cory like, in the back seat of the car, with Janice driving them back to the castle after Donovan's brain's been, like, disrupted, his control's been disrupted, um... Corey just, like, says, like, yeah, so here's what happened.
1: Yeah, that was a big point against the movie for me. You know, you bring up some of the tedious stuff. I actually didn't feel it as bad in this movie as, like, a lot of the other Poverty Row movies. Like, the people going from place to place and stuff didn't have the same, um... Like, monotonous feeling that it has in these other movies. And maybe it's just because this movie had, like, music behind it. So it didn't just feel like nothing. And, you know, your comment about the, the dance scene and the singing that, like, fills time, I definitely had that same feeling when that came up where it was like, oh, we're going to, you know, waste some time with this. But, like, honestly, that happens once at the start of the movie, and they do the song, and then they do the dance, and then that's it. And, like, we never do any more of that. We don't keep filling time with stuff that doesn't have anything to do with anything. And so I, I kind of give the movie a little bit of credit credit for that. The Donovan stuff, what frustrated me was, and I got the sense that, at least from you, that, like, it was that side of the plot that really didn't interest you. Like, the the kind of film noir, getting this guy out of the murder, Donovan's lawyer, all this kind of stuff.
0: It was interesting, but it was just like, why Why do I care? Like, there's no stakes for me. Because well, I don't care, like, I don't know who Roger Collins is, we mm-hmm. you can only figure out who Roger Collins is at the very end, when Corey's like, yeah, it turns out it was Donovan's legitimate son.
1: Yeah, the problem is that the Donovan plot is really complicated.
0: Yeah. And
1: isn't explained to us until after it doesn't matter anymore. And it has this whole other second set of characters. There's Donovan's wife, there's his lawyer, there's this, like, uh... I don't know, like, scumbag that works for the lawyer. There's Roger Collins. There's uh, the guy that Collins is accused of having killed. There's Mary Lou and her grandmother and all these people. And they're off in their own little movie over here. And it just doesn't have enough to do with the castle plot, as I'm calling it. And, I mean, I guess that's evidence of the fact that, yeah, because they just added all this other shit to an existing story. But, like, they just don't come together enough and because the only connection is Donovan being Corey you're right like we have no reason to care um and it's hard to follow because it hasn't been explained to us and i think the movie's trying to play it like it's an intriguing mystery like what's Donovan up to and what's what's his game here and stuff um because you know we don't know But if that's the case, the way that they solve that mystery is super frustrating and and makes it all just feel like it was pointless. You know, you've already brought up that, like, yeah, they're driving back and he just explains it all. It's so clumsily done because, like, he's also super exhausted, Corey, that is, at this point, because he's been under Donovan's control for so long. So he's, like, half asleep being like, yeah, and then this is how it all hangs together. And... You know, he goes through and he's explaining all this stuff about Donovan's life and about this whole, this entire character that you never meet the whole movie, who is the guy who got shot, and how that ties into all this other stuff. And, like, you know, there's all these clever details, like how Donovan has, like, a secret code thing that he uses to take his money out of the bank, and that's how, like, Corey can take it out, even though he's clearly a different guy, because he knows the code, because he's Donovan, and blah, 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 blah. The thing that's the most egregious about all of that is that once we get that explanation and Corey's not under Donovan's control, we never go back to those characters. It's just dropped. Other than the narrator at the end coming in and being like, by the way, everything worked out fine.
0: But, like, there's also, like, you, you get invested in these characters in the way of, like, basically... Um, Mrs. Donovan and the lawyer Fulton are trying to keep Roger Collins in jail so that Mrs. Donovan will Mm -hmm. get all of the inheritance money. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing followed up about that at all. Like, I guess because Roger Collins is free, like he won't be electrocuted or whatever, but there's still like, we don't even know if Roger Collins knows that he's Donovan's son. Yeah. We don't even know if Donovan has money. That too, because there's, there's this whole newspaper article about... That
1: talks about how he's a fraud and it was all, like, bullshit.
0: But yet he has all this money in a bank account?
1: Yeah, like, and none of it's satisfactorily explained because essentially what this movie does is, you know, I think what, you know, I haven't read Donovan's brain. Um, maybe I should. But I get the feeling that what's happening here is, like, We have all of this stuff with Corey and Janice and Mueller and Mrs. Fame and the castle and and whatever. And then at the point where, like, Corey starts being Donovan, we're following the book. And at the point where Corey stops being Donovan, we're not. And so Mm -hmm. it's like dropping into and out of a different story, like, midway through a movie. Um, And so, yeah, none of this stuff is, like, satisfactorily explained or followed up on because it's not what this movie cares about. Yeah. Right? It almost has the same kind of problem that Black Friday kind of had. Definitely. Where, you know, with the mind control stuff where it's like, okay, now we're going off and doing this crime movie stuff and coming back. The thing is that, like, I was actually kind of interested in what was going on with Donovan and his money and his lawyer and his wife and all that. I was interested in it until the movie suddenly said, no, 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 you're not supposed to be interested in this. And the problem is is that what the movie wanted me to be interested in is this like, you know, here's a mad scientist in a big spooky castle and with his weird spooky housemaid and there's these young lovers who are going to get to, and it's like, fuck, I've seen that movie like a million fucking times, you know?
0: And it's also that like, yes, that's where they want our attention to be, but they haven't developed it. As you said, either the writer didn't care enough to put in something Mm -hmm. in the castle plot or they relied enough on you knowing the tropes that they didn't have to yeah and both of which both of those like plausible reasons uh are bad (laughs) well i think i think we we
1: hit on the fact that like the writing is really the thing that lets this movie down and i don't think it's I think the, the castle plot characters and all of their stuff and their interactions and their their writing, whatever, is fine. I think all the Donovan stuff is fine, presumably because that's mostly what Kurt Seadmack is responsible for here. Um, I think it's the way that the two are joined together yeah. that's bad. And I also think that the movie has like a pretty bad ending, because yeah. the ending is just, we shoot the mad scientist, we smash the brain, and then the narrator comes on to explain to us that all the loose ends got tied up. And I think any time that you need to have a narrator come in, really at all in a movie, but especially to come in to say, here's how all the loose ends got tied up, kind of shows that, yeah, you didn't write a very good screenplay if you needed to do that. I mean, a narrator in a film should either be about setting mood. Or it should be, like, a first-person thing where we're getting someone's, like, inner thoughts and opinions in a way that gives us, like, maybe some dramatic irony with what we're seeing on the screen, you know. Or is just giving us information we wouldn't already have. And I don't think, you know, for the most of the movie, the narrator isn't doing that. He's telling us, here is the castle of the mad scientist. It's like, yeah, I can see that. Mm -hmm. And then, you know the information he's giving us at the end is just there so that fucking CinemaSins doesn't do a fucking YouTube video about how, like, oh, they forgot to explain the thing.
0: <laughs> oh,
1: you know what I mean?
0: I love how much you hate CinemaSins. So I think part of the issue here is this movie is about an hour and 26 minutes, which is pretty long for what this movie is. Mm. And I think I, I actually do feel a little sorry eh, sorry for the writer, I sympathize with them because they were given a book and said, adapt this, but make sure we get these two people in it. Mm -hmm. But one of the main characters, like one of the male stars has to be evil so we can have like a good male star. Yeah. And they did what they could. And what kind of happened is sure they adapted the novel and that's why it takes up most of the screen time, but then they didn't have enough time to put in like something to set up the castle plot mm. just just to kind of like soften what we were saying like it's not so much bad writing it's just like cramped yeah clumsy. well and it was just
1: it's just it's just giving it's just not a good fit because you're trying to fit like a kind of unique and different story which is donovan's brain within like an existing stock framework and the reason why the framework is stock is because you know. If you're given the task of like, hey, come up with something for these extra people to do, it's like, oh, okay, and then, you know, you just go with the first idea that you've got.
0: Um, I, I will just take issue a little bit with what you said about this being, like, the Donovan part being kind of a unique premise, mm. because it's not, sort of. It's, this is basically Black Friday, mm-hmm. only with telepathy, instead of, like, the Orlocks Hund-esque Brain transplant. Right. And even then, it's almost like this is the result of a game of telephone with Orlok's Hand, right. where in Orlok's Hand, the hands being transplanted, whatever, but also blackmail in a detective story, to Black Friday, where it's a brain transplant, or a partial brain transplant, and remembering those memories into criminal activities, and here, where it's telepathy and leading to criminal activities.
1: I will say that as much as like, you know, we can give this movie shit for like copying earlier premises and... And could
0: see Mac kind of copying his own
1: work. Right. So that's what I mean to say is like, I know that on the one hand people like to, you know, oh, it's not original or whatever. If you look at any one writer or one creative figure's body of work, you'll often see a lot of repetition like that where you sort of go, Oh, this is kind of, you know, they had one central idea maybe that they had that they're trying to like work out over a few different iterations. And eventually they get to like the good version of it. And then, you know, either they stop or if they're in some cases, they keep going and it gets worse again. Um, And I think we're seeing that with and Mac where, you know, if black Friday is kind of an earlier version of this idea, And then, okay, well, now to do it here, it's like, Black Friday was what, 1940, 1941? 40, yeah. So it's like, that's the version where we're kind of pulling back on the horror sci-fi elements a bit and doing a little bit more of the crime elements because it's the early 40s and we're still not sure if horror is here to stay. And then now it's the mid-40s and, like, gothic horror is really back. And so, like, we're pushing those elements more. And it's, like, trying to figure out Mm -hmm. the right balance. And I am... As much as this movie stumbles a little bit, I am looking forward to eventually getting to the movie that's called Donovan's Brain, because I'm looking forward to seeing kind of like the the perfected version of this story, I guess.
0: Yeah, yeah. So I think that's kind of key here. I think if Steve Mack had been the one to adapt his own work into this and to add these characters, like it would have maybe been a bit more smooth, mm-hmm. um... But as it stands, like, I think the novel Donovan's Brain is something to really look at. Like, I'm kind of curious to read it, um, because it does seem like a more perfected version of Black Friday. Mm -hmm. That being said, in the case of this movie, The Lady and the Monster, um, I... Bad title. Yeah, bad title. It, yeah, I'm not too sure about it, um... I think it's a little better stitched together than Black Friday or Mm -hmm. even if you think of The Devil Doll which also had this issue of like three uh, of different movies kind of being pushed together. I'm curious what you think about ranking this because Black Friday is on the miscellaneous list. Mm -hmm.
1: I think this is definitely horror. I think this is much more identifiably a horror movie than what Black Friday was. Black Friday felt like this kind of we described it as being like a crime movie with a gimmick yeah, because it gave so much attention to the crime stuff. I think even when we're doing the Donovan's brain, get Roger Collins out of jail, where's my lawyer, here's a thousand bucks stuff, the focus is still on the horror of like Corey's autonomy being taken away by this other force and the reaction of Janice to seeing like you know, how much he's changed and how cruel he is suddenly and all that kind of stuff. So I think this is still much more identifiably horror. Mm -hmm. And I think if there's a victory to this movie, it's, I think that the cast and the crew did a pretty good job trying to make a sort of unified product out of what was a bit of a patchwork screenplay.
0: Yeah, I would agree. Um, The way that the lighting is done, especially with Corey being underlit the whole way through, um, I think that really emphasizes what you're describing. So, Mm -hmm. cool. Where were you thinking of ranking this?
1: Pulling up the list, um, I've got a bit of a wide range, unfortunately. Because it is a movie I enjoyed watching, but does have a lot of problems. It is pretty firmly in the bottom half. Of the list, so my floor was number eighty-four, which is the mummy's hand. Okay. Uh, I thought this was better than the mummy's hand because I thought that the mummy's hand was bad. Bad, pretty boring for the most part. Not good. Then I kept looking up from there, and it—it's kind of weird the way that quality kind of dips in and out through this part of the list at times, depending on what sort of aspects of the movie you're looking at. Yeah. Um, But I did make my way up above the Devil Doll, because I agreed with you that this does a better job of sort of stitching that patchwork quilt together than the Devil Doll does. Um, Above that, there's Mystery of the Wax Museum and Return of Dr. X, which felt, like, weirdly comparable. And I finally made it up to uh, Voodoo Man, which is ridiculous. And right above Voodoo Man, we've got Curse of the Cat People, which this is definitely not better than. So that kind of ended up being my range, was uh, 63 through to 84.
0: Interesting. So my range is significantly smaller, but it does fit right into yours. Okay, well that's helpful. Yeah. (laughs) My floor is The Devil Doll Mm. at 67, because even though, like, that movie, like we've said, it's three different movies, but the horror Part of it...
1: Is very weak.
0: Is weak, especially compared to this film, which does manage to kind of have horror throughout all of it. Yes. It has weak parts, it has weaker parts, but it at least manages to have a through line. So, to me, this is better on that part than The Devil Doll. And then my ceiling is the fuck was the Mad Monster again? Was that the, um... Mad
1: Monster's the one where it's, um... Zuko... Zuko uh, turns uh, Glenn Strange into a werewolf who wanders around the forest back and forth.
0: Yeah, this is better than that.
1: <laughs> yes, I would agree. <laughs> because
0: <'cause> that... <laughs> it's just so bad. Um, even just on production value alone. Now, Voodoo Man's right above there. I don't know. Voodoo Man is pretty, com- like, pretty competent, and it has our three main horror actors in there. Even just thinking of John Carradine's unique way of bringing something to the character and how effectively he does that compared to von Stroheim here. You know,
1: the thing that we have to address here then is a bit of a sticky wicket for this kind of horror movie, in my opinion. Because here's my thing about The Voodoo Man. I think The Voodoo Man is a really stupid movie. Yeah. It's a lot of fun, though. I think The Lady and the Monster... I don't think it's a stupid movie. I think that it was made by and written by very smart people. It just doesn't do a good job of pulling its elements together. And as, you know, effective as it is, the effectiveness of Lady and the Monster while at the same time being a little bit lackluster in its story, is not as fun to watch as the lunacy of Voodoo Man, which has more of a through line, but is a lot stupider. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, how do you compare those two things? Like, how do you compare, like, a good idea done poorly versus like, a stupid idea done entertainingly. Mm. You know what I mean?
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, Because, like, part of me is inclined to say this should go above Voodoo Man because Voodoo Man is utter trash. But, you know, if you asked me which I would rather watch, I would probably say I would rather watch Voodoo Man over Lady and the Monster, if you said, which one do you have to watch again, you Mm -hmm. know? But I think that, like... I would rather take Richard Erlin and Vera Ralston over the, like, male and female lead in Voodoo Man who are, you know, they're Brad and Janet. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah. That's a good point. Um, I think even just looking at the power of the technique Mm. going to both movies, and I think also the skill behind the camera. Yeah, Yeah. I think I would agree with you that... The Lady and the Monster should go above Voodoo Man, but still below Curse of the Cat People. Yeah,
1: definitely. I think that, you know, it's clear that the director and cinematographer of Lady and the Monster were trying to do something, and William Bodine was trying to make lunch.
0: (laughs) Sure. This is, uh, almost our third, sort of our third week in a row. That we're
1: putting something in this spot? I know. Yeah,
0: well, last week we put, um, The Monster Maker at number 90, so Mm -hmm. that was kind of a combo breaker. But still. Uh
1: Entering the list at number 63, The Lady and the Monster from 1944, directed by George Sherman.
0: If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to all of the many episodes we've kind of referred to today, um, as well as an appeals box. If you would like to appeal this or any other ranking, you can submit through our Ask box on Tumblr or you can email us directly at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com. You can also talk to us on Twitter at underscore screamscene and share any concerns, questions, uh, thoughts, anything of the sort. We'd love to hear from you.
1: Screamscene updates every Wednesday on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, and wherever fine podcasts are found, so long as you subscribe to our RSS feed. If you so choose, you can leave a rating or a review for the show. Uh, We like seeing good reviews, and they also help the show get seen by potential new listeners. Another way that you can help bring in those potential new listeners is simply by telling folks about us, sharing the show on social media, or around the water cooler, or uh, wherever your social life happens to revolve around. You can also help support us by heading over to patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast, where you can make a monetary contribution towards the continued uh, production of this program by becoming a patron of the night for as little as $1 a month. At $5 a month, you will receive access to weekly bonus audio. $10 a month, there's a library of horror short fiction that I've written that is only seen by patrons of the show. And if we hit our first Patreon goal of $150 a month, we will start doing a bonus fifth episode every month covering horror-adjacent
0: movies, uh, like... Rocky Horror Picture Show. Right. I definitely was thinking about that as we were rolling up to this movie. A lot of these
1: old 40s movies. So many of them start with, like, the couple needing to use the phone in the old house. Anyways, that's patreon.com slash Podcast.
0: What are we watching next week, Ben?
1: Well, next week, Sarah... We are in sequel territory. Oh. It's a sequel to one of our our most beloved films. It's Jungle Woman, the sequel to Captive Wild Woman.
0: Oh, boy. Uh, are we sure that this is horror? Because the first one was kind of not, sort of.
1: Well, that's because half of it was um, stock footage from a different movie. Yeah. That's not going to be the case here, maybe.
0: Maybe. Okay, well... We will take a gander at the Jungle Woman, and we will see you, Creatures of the Night, next week. Bye. Bye.